from Workhouse Connect and A.J. Benza. Fame. Uh, he liked to be walked on a leash and play really dirty, kinky sex games. He's a... The guy put the cock in the Peacock Network, okay? Bitch. Hey, everybody. A.J. Benza here for Fame is a Bitch. This is your podcast for February 10th, 2020. Um, I actually... The Oscars have just begun behind me. I haven't... I'm not going to watch them. Uh, Janelle Monet has walked out. I love her body. I always think she's adorable. Um, very disappointed when she when she announced to the world that she's queer, and I'm sure she'll mention it tonight because she loves that about herself. But she's a, a, a fun girl to watch. Anyhow, um, I'll get to that stuff T- tomorrow's show. Tomorrow's Patreon will be all about the Oscars because every year it gets me fucking insane as it does you. My phone is already started to blow up. You guys are sending me messages on the podcast obsessed page, on the Patreon app, on Messenger. Oh my God, everybody's lighting me up. So I'm going to finish this podcast and watch the show. Um, I just wanted to say um, the next time anybody feels like they, you know, that they can't do what they want because they've had a rough childhood, listen to this story that I just heard. It's fascinating. So I'm obsessed with uh, watching David Spade's... Anything David Spade does, I love. I love his humor. I love that guy, that guy that's too cool, and the put-down guy. I love it. Um, and I love his late-night show, Lights Out. I think it's the best thing on TV for, you know, to make you laugh and make you have a just a nice, easy half hour of fun jokes, topical humor, current events, Hollywood shit. It's great. It's like a moving podcast, a visual podcast. Um so you never think for a second when the when you see him do his comedy that uh you know that he had a rough childhood. You know what I mean? How about David Spade had a father? He was they were all born in Michigan. Him and his two brothers were born in Michigan. Okay, Andy, Brian, and David. Or Brian, Andy, David, right? By the way, Andy, hugely successful designing fucking Kate Spade bags, right? And David's successful. I don't know what Brian does, but I'm sure he's doing fine. But the father Takes everybody out of Michigan when when Spade is four years old and says, we're going to Arizona. I got a big job in Arizona. They get in the car and drive to Arizona. When they get there, there's no job. The father was lying, right? Uh, so now they're in Arizona with nothing to do. And he's a drunk. He's running, He's walking all over town with a few bucks in his pocket. They don't know how they're going to pay the bills. The money's running out. He's banging neighbors. The mother's mortified. The kids are embarrassed. Finally, he, there's a divorce. He's gone. Now, the mother's alone with three little boys, and, um, you know, finally she meets another guy. So that's good. Meets a nice doctor, an ER doctor. Good-looking guy. David Spade's four years old, right? The guy was a medic in Vietnam. Uh, well, now he's a few years older. Okay, he's not four anymore. So he was four when his dad left. Let's say he's six. Who the fuck knows? The guy's obsessed with showing David Spade and his brothers, you know, all these x-rays of people with nails in their eye, knives in their assholes in the emergency rooms. You know, he brings the x-rays home and shows the kids how crazy his job is. And Spade's early memories is, of, uh, are seeing things in people's asses, bottles. <laughs> the fucking father brings home. Obviously, the father's drinking. You can't do this straight. But the father bought, the stepfather bought all the boys guns for Christmas. And not just guns, sawed-off shotgun for David Spade, right? I think he's nine or seven, eight and bullets too. the whole thing, the whole Magoo. And uh, their oldest brother was 14. 
the mother on like a Saturday would drive all the boys into the desert, like eight miles away, give them all their guns and ammunition and a sandwich. And they they each have a quarter to call home when they were done shooting shit, shooting bottles, shooting animals, just walking around with guns, shooting shit. This is childhood. Now, this fa- stepfather, who's the doctor in the emergency room, the doctor on call, the surgeon, he starts having PTSD from Vietnam. And he's waking up at night with a helmet on, a, a, a wartime helmet from the war that he took home. And he's got his gun with the bayonet on it. And he's waking the boys up because the, 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 the you know, the, the fucking Viet Cong are coming on the other side of the Delta. And he's in a fog. And all the little boys have guns in their hands walking around the house as if it's the Tet Offensive. And this is the kind of childhood he had. So the PTSD got really bad. So he's drinking more and more. And he's still a doctor. He's still on call. He would be falling down in the house, drunk, falling down. The mother would say, I know one of these days I'm going to have to call the hospital and say he's unfit to to operate, but he'll lose his job. So she would like cross her fingers and the stepdad would go and load it and operate on people. Oh, my God. Anyhow, he ends up dying. You know, David Spade, you wonder where comedy comes from? Jesus Christ. So I just find that fascinating that this guy, this stepdad's a fall down drunk, PTSD, giving the kids guns, running around with helmets at night. Scary shit. And then not for nothing. The other scary part of David Spade's life is um, his he had a he had a, 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 a an assistant who was going to kill him. His, I don't know if you, you must have heard the story. He had an assistant. His buddy was using an assistant during a, during the movie Tommy um, Tommy guy, right? Was Tommy? What's wrong with me? Sounds funny, Tom, Tommy boy. So his his friend didn't need the assistant anymore, and assistant and Dave needed one, and he was interviewing a girl for the job or this guy who was three hundred pounds, six foot two. Chris Farley just dies, and on the day he was going to hire the girl. He realized his friend's got this assistant who's 300 pounds, six foot two, and he's thinking of Farley. He goes, you know what? I'm going to hire so-and-so. So he hires the guy, and they start right away. And the guy's really, like, getting involved in his life, being like really, really being a good assistant for, for a number of years. They did, he did great for David. And then he started, like, doing stupid shit like, hey, man, could you give me a ticket to the Dodger game? And Spade was like, well, mm, all right, I'll get an extra one, sure. You know, and NBC would always leave tickets for Spade for Dodgers games, and David never wanted to go because he never wanted to be in. Um, he didn't want to owe NBC a favor, you know what I mean? So if you take the tickets, you've got to do something for them, and they need you. Go to some other fucking affiliate and talk to the, you know, talk to the people at the building. Blah blah. He don't want to do that, so he never took the tickets. And when NBC called him in to fill in the favor, he's like, "Well, I think we've talked. You know, I think I've taken care. Well, we gave you those Dodger tickets," and he's like, "I never went." And they go, no, your assistant took all of them. It's like 50 games. This fucking guy was going to games with his friends. Then he would like start texting people in, in Spade's phone. He had all the numbers. He's texting Rebecca Bornet and other people going, hey, what's going on? Dave wants to talk to you. And they'd call Dave going, what's up? And he'd say, nothing. How you doing? And they'd say, well, so-and-so just called me. Something going on? And he goes, no, I didn't tell him to call you. Then he wanted a part in a movie. And David Spade was like, I got to hire Kevin Nealon, you know, it, it, look, it's not my movie. Andy Andy Sandler is producing it. It's his movie. Nealon's coming up for the job. I'd rather have Nealon in it. He's you know he's a pro, 
And guy got pissed off. This assistant is mad that he didn't get the job. Dave goes, oh, look, another movie. When I'm doing it, I'll get you in. Don't worry about it. Long story short, one night, Spade has this feeling somebody's in his room. And he's like, I mean, we all have that feeling. But he, like, really felt it. Opens his eyes. And there's this 300-pound, two assistant in his doorway looking at him. And he goes, what's up? What's going on? Like, he got in his house. He knew the code, blah, 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 the driveway code, the house code. He, he comes in. And he goes, oh, yeah, the alarm company said there was a false alarm. Dave goes, I didn't hear anything. He's like, yeah, they con- I, I had I had it so they contact me instead of bugging you. So it's all good. But then they start talking in the hallway, and the guy's being a real dick, and he just fucking wallops Spade, knocked him on his ass, and he's beating the shit out of him on his own bed. So Spade's trying to escape the room. Very hard to get around this guy. Finally, he does. He runs outside of his house, but he realizes the guy's right on his tail. He can't punch the code into his big black wrought iron gate. He's living in the flats of Beverly Hills. Not a mansion, but, you know, you need a gate. Obviously, you need a gate if your own assistant wants to kill you. He can't punch the code quick enough. But somehow, the cops were already alerted. I forget how or why it happened. Oh, Spade got back in the house and shut the door just as the big fat guy assistant hit the door, almost broke it off the frame. And as he's hitting it with his shoulder, Spade calls the cops. They come. But before that, Spade runs up in his room because the one thing he had under his bed and his assistant knew this was a loaded shotgun. The shotgun that he got as a kid. So the assistant knew that. And the story is the cops, the assistant told the cops, I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to kill Dave, then kill myself. That's how close he was to fucking dying. If he didn't wake up and that guy got the gun, would have been Phil Hartman dead and David Spade dead. How about that? So um, they tried to say the guy did an eight ball. He'd never done cocaine. And that night he took an eight ball because he was really depressed, blah, blah, blah. You know what happens is these assistants start living the life. They get in, they, 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 they're so entrenched in the celebrity lifestyle that they start to think they're celebrity. And when they realize people will tell them, well, you think you are, but you're not like you're living the life, but that's not your life. You know, you're making 50,000 a year. Okay. And that's not your life. They get really depressed. So this guy, I don't blame it on drugs because I've you know, done a lot of cocaine in my life. I didn't want to kill, you know, my friend or my boss. But I heard all this on Mark Marin's podcast. I was listening to Whitney Cummings podcast because I love to hear David Spade talk. Doesn't say enough. He's been through a lot. I know it sounds gay. I love talking about him so much. But um, so I go, oh, he was on Mark Marin. And the Mark Marin thing was like an hour and change. I love podcasts for that reason. You know, they're just that's why podcasts are great. You, you you know, you never you would never hear David Spade say all that shit on a talk show while he's, you know, promoting grown ups too or whatever the fuck. But with a good podcast, you get great stories, man. Like I'm just watching CBS this morning, earlier today. They had a bit on there about Hollywood hiring intimacy advisors, intimacy coordinators on sets where there's going to be a love scene. Girls, you know, actresses like it for obvious reasons. And now actors kind of like it because they need some protection because down the road, girls can say, in our sex scene, he was uh, touching me, blah, blah, blah. I come to find out some of these shows where a girl and a guy are making out, some of these guys want to wear cups because they don't want the girl to even get near. I would not go that far as an actor. Like, I'd Maybe you should. Maybe if a girl sees you get a hard on, you're going to get fucking the producer call you and you're going to get in trouble. So maybe you got to wear a cup now. It's all fucked up. You know, it's all ridiculous. 
the one time I had a sex scene type thing was in this film I was in. I, I tell you, I never saw the film. It went to Cannes. It was called Not Not Even the Trees. Steven Seagal and his mafia friend Jules Nassau produced this thing. And Nassau was this mafiosa friend, connector guy, I think for the Genovese's, I think. And I played this pimpish drug dealer kind of guy who also took drugs as well. And the script called for a real hot girl to be with me all the time. Like my, my, my main pimp, I mean, my main whore kind of thing. It was going to be Eddie Byrne's girlfriend, Maxine Bonds. She got cast. And I was calling her every night. We were hanging out. Then I think she just felt like, you know what? I can't play a whore. And she was really too sweet for the part, to be honest. It wouldn't have worked. And we lived in the same building. It was weird. So then this other girl gets it. I forget her name. Forget her name. Um, but she, it was, you know, she was, it was the, the script called for a very hot girl to be with me for like the three scenes I had. And they brought me in the office. Seagal and Nasso brought me in the office and showed me headshots of three or four girls you know, all fucking hot, all like sexy girls. And I said, you know, pick one. And I said, I get to pick? Was the casting? No, you pick it. And Seagal goes, you're going to be the one mauling her. You might as well enjoy it. That's the way it was back then. This is like 1995. That's the kind of shit that would get a movie closed, director fired, the actor would be shunned. Are you kidding me? And of course, I picked this really hot looking girl, this crazy girl, totally looked and acted the part. She had zero boundaries, zero walls up. And then there's still that little dance you have to do. Like it's that day, this that that day to shoot the scene where I start to fucking, you know, lift the shirt up and do my thing and throw her on the bed, you know, and it's, it's awkward. Plus we've been together for now three or four days. So we get to know each other. There's a little alcohol on the set that day to stay a little loose. That's probably not even done anymore. And um, the scene really isn't scripted, you know, for the moves and stuff on the bed. So it's up to us to do whatever. Like it starts with her against the wall. And I ask her, you know, where my, where can my hands go? And she's like, you know, any way you think. I said, under your shirt, you know, it calls for under your shirt, the script. She goes, yeah, totally. Let's do it. And she's just game, game. And uh, if I remember, like I said, there's liquor on the set. So we both had had a drink or two to feel a little looser. And um, I'm like, all right, what about the skirt? I don't want to do the wrong thing. And she's like, do whatever you want. <laughs> Thank God. But I can't think of how exactly different it is today. No one's going to say that anymore. Do what you want. It's my your body too. Just let's have fun. That's what this girl was doing for me. I ended up, I didn't date her, but she ended up coming to my house. I begged her to come over Halloween night. I didn't want to go out. To me, it's amateur night. And she's like, well, I'm going to a party. I can stop over your house first. And she did, and we had a lot of fun. But she dressed for this party as a crazy dominatrix. You know, the black boots up to the fucking head. You know, crazy. Oh, my fucking. If it wasn't Halloween, what this would have looked like coming into my apartment. Forget it. But I forget her name. I got to look up the, I forget. I'll look up the cast. But, you know, do whatever you want. And I did. And the weirdest part is you're doing all this kissing and putting your hands on her. And there's no sound in the uh, in the studio, on the set. You know, people are staring. At her, not my ass, but it's it's uncomfortable. I, I bring this up because the actress that started this whole thing, this intimacy coordinator thing, was the chick on the deuce, the one who went from the prostitute to the porn star. I think her name is Emily Mead, right? And now I thought it was interesting 
because I'd never seen her act in anything before, I don't think. And she was really sexy in this. Very tough role. She was nude all the time, just getting fucked on porn sets. Crazy. You know, double penetration. Like, you know, real gamer. And uh, she's on the set with James Franco. Okay? And she even had a tiny bit of a sex scene with him at the end of one of the uh, seasons. And she had nothing but good things to say about James Franco. And I'm glad she said it because, you know, I never liked all the sexual assault claims that were levied against him, you know, lobbed against him. But I was thinking about the Oscars a couple of years ago where everybody protested, protested him. You know, he, he didn't get a nomination. He really deserved one for the disaster artist. He was phenomenal in that. Um, I don't know if it would have beaten Gary Oldman, but he was terrific in the disaster artist. He didn't go to the Oscars. It was a nightmare. So I'm watching all the Oscar shit tonight. <clears throat> you know, Billy Porter's got the gold LeMay fucking top of the dress with crinoline. Give me a fucking break. And he's got the nerve to make fun of what Al Pacino's wearing. Hey, asshole. You know, it's one thing to be invited to the party. When you start talking shit about the legends, you can go fuck off. I looked over my left shoulder and I saw Janelle Monet and a bunch of crazy people. I, 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 know, I know without even knowing that there's going to be a gay remark. I know it. Because it started last night, Saturday Night Live had RuPaul on. Every fucking skit was gay and tranny and shit. Like, just try to do a straight skit. Anything he did straight was just gay. Oh, fuck it. And, of course, every... My wife goes, oh, you're not going to like SNL because I watched it Sunday morning. I said, no, you know, RuPaul is RuPaul. I've been around it forever. No, but believe me, she was right. Oh, my God. So... The whole gay trans transgender shit started last night with RuPaul Saturday night. It's continuing with Janelle Monet and Billy fucking Porter on the red carpet talking shit, wearing his crinoline and taffeta. Any man who's wearing taffeta can go shut the fuck up. I'm not taking direction or instructions from you. I'm just not. So I'm watching the Oscars so I can give you my review on 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 Tuesday's Patreon. Um. Most of you are on it. If you're not, get on patreon.com backslash fame is a bitch. It's just great. The last two weeks have been fantastic. I have huge Scientology news tomorrow on Patreon. Huge. Of what these goons are up to with another one of Masterson's uh, exes who claimed and claims he raped her. Um, There's a lot of things I can say. Some things I can't say. I'm going to go over with her tomorrow exactly what I can go forward with, but it's fucking shocking. Not shocking, but sickening. So be be sure you listen in for that as well. But I spent the morning putting up all these pictures on my Instagram stories, all these cool actors and actresses who won Oscars in the 70s and or just people who went to the Oscars in the 70s. Muhammad Ali, Sylvester Stallone, Johnny Carson, Nicholson, Beatty, Shirley MacLaine, Robert, uh, Robert Evans, Catherine Deneuve, Sharon Tate. Great pictures. And I just captioned it when the Oscars were cool. Because it's been nothing but a drag for a while. I know they walked out, Chris Rock and Steve Martin. Um, it's not going to work for me. Again, tune in tomorrow's Patreon to hear all the shit I have to say about that. But I wanted to do that thing on Instagram because I was thinking how long it's been since the Oscars were cool. It's been a drag. And I'm sure we're going to hear political speeches left and right, vegan and climate control bullshit and fuck Trump. I can't imagine being anybody let alone an actor, and deciding, I'm going to stand up tonight and tell people to not eat meat. I'm going to tell people 
who the fuck they should vote for. I'm going to teach them what I know to be true. The, the, the fucking narcissism, the ego. What else? What, when else are you ever allowing a high school dropout to tell you how much you should live your life? Or children, for that matter. Because, you know, like I said, I'm taping this. I'm taping the Oscars. And I wouldn't be surprised if Greta Thunberg fucking paraglides onto the set to tell us what we're doing wrong. And by the way, whenever you hear these speeches, or whenever you heard them last night, because this being Monday, and not just the political speeches, the little quips, the funny quips, even the ones that everyone talks about tomorrow and Tuesday, not the -the off-the-cuff stuff, but the ones like Michelle Williams, the bullshit about abortion she talked about at the the Golden Globes, and women have choices, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Do you realize... Most, if not all, of these moments are written by speechwriters. And not just any speechwriters. How about men and women who write speeches for presidents and officials, like big-time people? It's all written out by professionals, guys. One of the biggest businesses now in Hollywood is this particular thing, speechwriting for people getting awards. It's all choreographed. And, you know, with the amount of money nowadays an Oscar means to a movie, the days of just letting a nominee wing it up there, that's over. Nowadays, with everything you say that's being parsed and and weighed and put under a microscope and judged, what we're losing is the spontaneity of life. Especially at a time when some people are being surprised with an award or maybe a lifetime achievement. Don't you want to hear something from their heart, not from the fingertips of some Democratic fucking speechwriter? I don't. So nowadays, a nominee's lack of focus or preparation or, or any kind of inability to deliver a speech that is at least authentic, it can ruin their chances of winning an Oscar or a Globe or an Emmy. So they're not doing They're not chancing it anymore. Just like they're putting cups on top of their cocks now, now they're getting people to write the words they say. Because after all, they're actors. They make money with other people's words. Why would they go off book to thank people when those thanks and those quips they make can destroy them or hurt the movie? That's how guarded this shit is now. So now you got these specially hired speechwriters who will meet extensively with the nominee and their teams, publicists, crisis management, all that bullshit to help them hone in on a message and, and, and polish jokes while also making sure the nominee stays on brand for, you know, 45 seconds to a minute. That's what Carrie Fisher used to do a lot for people, man. Plenty of you probably never knew that the so many movies you love that don't even have Carrie Fisher in them and so many award speeches you may have loved or hated were written by her too. She wrote them for friends. She wrote them for people. She got paid very well to do this. She was a big script doctor with a name never attached. And she wrote speeches for people. She wrote quips for people. She wrote jokes for people. She punched up screenplays all over town. It was a regular thing. I know you don't want to hear this, but I hear a lot of what Brad Pitt has been saying at these last few award shows, all these funny things. You know, he's being heralded as, oh, my God, Brad is so happy. He's, He's so great off the cuff. And I, you know. I love him. So whatever he says, I like, even if it's political, I love to hear Brad Pitt talk. I think he was buried too long under all, underneath all the bullshit of marrying Angelina, or leaving Jen. But all the shit he's been saying, written by someone else. Whether he was casually saying that the, the British Film Awards, the BAFTAs, hey, England, congratulations on the whole being single thing. 
Or when he said Quentin Tarantino has separated more beautiful women from their shoes than the TSA? No, somebody wrote it. I hope it's not true, but I hear it's true. And that said, it makes me wonder, do the elite actors and actresses in Hollywood have nothing more than record and playback brains? Really? They can't even say anything that's from the heart or original on their own. Does everything have to be scripted by somebody else? It's as if they're not capable of original thought. That bothers me. It'd be so refreshing to hear a simple, impromptu, heartfelt statement rather than a bullshit political rant they didn't write anyhow. Let me get to what's bothering me, and I'm going to take apart and analyze this whole thing for you. By now, you've all heard Pamela Anderson and John Peters split up after 12 days. I just can't stand how Pam's people are trying to blow this whole thing off as Pam just wasn't ready. You know, we heard the bullshit about, well, you know, there was a text from John Peters. That's a bunch of shit, too. First, heard people come out with this nonsense statement. Well, Pamela just spent a month in India on an Ayurvedic cleanse to start the new decade off fresh. She was doing constant meditation and yoga. From what? What the fuck does this girl do? She came back very open. Yeah, oh, we know. She's always open. John has pursued her for 30 years. They were texting while she was in India, and they agreed to have lunch. And the long story is, the day she returned, John invited some friends and family over for lunch. It was in the backyard of Malibu. Before you know it, they're together. They're married. It wasn't hit a friend officiated, obviously, but it was a sweet ceremony. But ultimately, you know, no license were filed. So it just is a simple misunderstanding. No, it wasn't. No, I know Pam only spent like five or six days out of the 12 they were together uh, at with him at his place. She was in Canada for the rest of the time, which I told you about. They never completed paperwork to legalize the union. That we know. But I'm just here to tell you that I was the first person to tell you that it's because of a IRS debt that she has that she wanted John to pay. And it's because she didn't want to leave Canada. And she really can't live in America because of all the money she owes the IRS. They're never going to give you that angle. But let me tell you how close they got. And then they had to go in and literally doctor the text he sent. So the two, so one keyword was no longer seen. And here it is. It took two days for them to do it, but I was right on top of it. They're spinning their wheels because of John Peters in this text, which I'm not even sure was real. I think he may have been asked to do it to be the one to say, hey, this is what happened. It's kind of my fault. I think. Okay, the, 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 this is the top, the top important half of the text. And it alludes to exactly to what I told you guys, why this thing ended up the way it ended up. The media is putting a nice velvety tippy top on it. But it's what I said. The fact that she owes the IRS a lot of money. She's got a big debt to pay. And if she's in this country and gets any work, they'll grab the money. And some of her former employees are on notice. So, I told you guys last week, it's the debt and the fact that she can't live here. That's the issue. So John Peters' text to her basically said all that. But the media, more specifically Pam's people, don't want you knowing it. He said, dear Pammy, these past nine days have been a beautiful, amazing love fest. What I've realized is that we are really good friends and have been for a very long time. This whole marriage thing with lawyers and debt, dot, 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 has scared me. Now, I don't know what they took out. Instead of, you know, putting in dot, 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 maybe something came out or maybe he had the ellipses. I don't know. Either way, debt. 
it made me realize that at 74, I need a quiet, simple life and not an international love affair. I think the best thing we can do is I'm going to go away for a couple of days and maybe you need to go back to Canada. So we got debt, we got international, and we got you go back to Canada. They're painting John Peters like some wounded puppy dog. You know, oh, John's just somebody who came to Pam's rescue when when, when she and Tommy Lee split uh, following a fight. And, you know, Pam, uh, Tommy kicked her in the ass and called her a fucking bitch. And he pled to uh, felony spousal, spousal battery, sentenced to six months in prison. Then they reunited two more times, split two more times. Oh, you know, but, but, you know, Pam's people are like, well, when Pam and Tommy broke up the first time, John had offered help. You see, he, he hid Pamela and her sons on his ranch in Aspen. And, you know, John is always long for Pam. They're, they're just making this out to be a fucking puppy guy as if, as if he had nothing to help her. He just didn't want to help with that fucking debt. He felt like that's a little disrespectful. It's insulting. There's a bullshit but very woke statement going around that you shouldn't believe. That reconciliation is out of the question. And John will always try to land her because he's had this longing for 30 years and all his girlfriends look like Pamela. And you're going to read things like Pamela dodged a bullet. She was very uncomfortable after finding out certain things. I can tell you she didn't like learning of his sexual harass allegations and subsequent payouts. She's always known that shit. There's a load of crap and it stinks twice as bad. Pamela has been with violent men a lot. And none of this ever seemed to bother her. Tommy Lee's violence, even against her, she stuck around. Kid Kid Rock's violent outbursts. Jesus, even Rick Solomon, her husband, two different times, isn't exactly a shining example of how to be a gentleman. This is the guy who filmed Paris Hilton giving him a blowjob and got a distribution deal and made a small fortune and Paris didn't get a penny. But that's all fine for Pam. She saw him as husband material. Not once, but twice she married him. Why did she marry these guys? For financial security. John didn't like that part of it. And I always say, if Solomon had at least tried to be a decent guy, then he would have banged Paris at a Hilton hotel, kept it in the family. I don't think he think he did it at the fourth season or some shit. But for God's sake, look at the promotional tie-ins. Bang Paris Hilton at a Hilton. It always made... Always got me pissed off. But John Peters had a sexual harassment situation where a jury ordered him to pay a former female associate or assistant about $3 million in damages. She said he exposed himself to her and her toddler. I think it was one of those things where the woman took an accidental robe opening to be a near rape. I don't think Peters would go after a woman with a, with a boy there or a girl there. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Either way, he paid her. You know, this is a guy that made $80 million to stay away from the Superman set. Didn't need the aggravation, so he peeled off $3 million and was done with the bullshit. And then there were four other opportunistic women who filed sexual harassment bullshit on him uh, at the height of the Me Too, the Me Too culture. And that was dismissed before going to trial. So Pam's team is trying desperately for all of us to believe that she's a perfectly innocent woman, a damsel in distress, for God's sake. But she is just shit at making decisions about men. And then we're all supposed to believe these men were horrible to her. You know, aside from hiding from Tommy Lee back in the day, she also sought refuge from her partner, the French soccer star, Adil Rami, the past few years. Her camp would say, oh, yes, Pam has run off to Cassis to journal in the ocean breeze. Pam leased a beautiful cliffside villa there to keep to herself 
they fucking talk about her. It's uh, less than seven months ago, she broke up with Rami and started this campaign to destroy his image. The last two years of my life have been a lie, a big lie. I was scammed, led to believe we were in big love. I'm devastated to find out in the last few days he was living a double life. They called Rami a monster, dishonest, a liar. They said he'd actually tried to leave 10 times. Each time she tried to leave, he'd run after her, pour on the charm. Sometimes he'd get violent. They say he was irrationally jealous, suspected of cheating. Well, that's what you get for going to see fucking Julian Assange four or five times. I wouldn't like it either. Oh, they call it. They say Pam's loyal to a fault. Listen, I got to say, it's always been hard for me to write a bad word about Pam Lannison and say bad things about her because she's always been the ultimate pinup to me. You know what I mean? I got to meet her and work with her on the show VIP. She cast me to have some part as a, a, a boxing announcer. She was across the ring. I was I was in a makeup chair next to her at 7 o'clock in the morning. She's outstanding looking without no makeup on. This is the height of Pam when she was with Marcus Schenkenberg. He's in the parking lot washing her fucking car, waxing a car with no shirt on the model. Oh, my God. I'm in there getting fucking powder sprinkled on top of my head to hide my thinning hairline. Talk about wanting my balls to be chopped off. But she's, always, she's the ultimate pinup girl to me. You know, and I was fortunate enough to meet her at the Playboy Mansion and exchange numbers with her. Actually, she just gave me hers. I didn't give her mine. And I was petrified to call her. I went up to her once when my nephew Joey there. I didn't get the number. And he comes back and I said, that was awful. He goes, that's fucking bad. How could you even be in? How could you see her the rest of the night? That was awful. I said, I know. I know. Just don't worry. I'll get it. I'll get it. And like two hours later, a couple more drinks. She's doing the same. I got the number. And I walked back, holding it over my head as if to say, fuck you, I got it. Now, I got the number. What am I going to do with it, right? Is this going to be Madonna all over again where she called me to see her at the Nick game and I blew her off and probably blew my shot? I was, I was, it fucking frightened me. I couldn't do it. So now I got Pam's number. And you know what? One Sunday, it took me days, days to call her. Probably a week, probably eight days. It was a Sunday after a week after the party. And I call on a Sunday afternoon, late morning, and she I hear her voice I hear her voice say hello. And I couldn't talk. And in the background, and excuse me if you've heard this story before, in the background I hear me doing mysteries and scandals. Because on Sundays I was on for like six hours straight. So I hear me in her house. I can't talk. I hang up. It was too much for me. She's watching me and now I'm talking. I hung up. A minute later, my phone rings. She star 69s me. And I didn't pick up. Obviously, the machine goes on. Hey, it's AJ. Leave a message. So she knows it's me. I had a girlfriend at the time who was living with me. My girlfriend was living with me. And um, she idolized Pam. Now, this is a young girlfriend, 19, 20 years old. Idolized her to no end. Looked up to her, how sexy she was and how pioneering she was, blah, blah, blah. And I used to blame my love for my my new girlfriend, why I couldn't make a move on Pam or just call Pam. You know, and I, and I got in the number at the mansion. Normally those encounters would be easy for me. That's a home game for me. But when the girl you're approaching is Pam Anderson and it's at the mansion, that's her home game. That made me a visitor. But the truth of the matter is I couldn't speak because she turned me into a little boy. Madonna did the same thing. But somewhere out in the shed, in a box with a ton of my other memories from back in the day, there's a piece of paper 
on Playboy Mansion stationery that says Pam in her handwriting. And there's a 323 number. I think the first three numbers are 655. I used to memorize it for a long time. But that was one of the very few times in my life where I was at a loss for words. Unfortunately, 20 years later, I'm not. And what I got to say isn't the most flattering shit about her. I still believe her to be gorgeous and sexy and all that stuff. And I know, you know, um, there's a share of people who will say great things about her heart and what a wonderful person she is. She, you know, but she's created this image as an innocent and woke goddess and all this shit. It's not working for me. She knew exactly what she was doing and making a move with John Peters. Fuck all this. She was too open after Ayurvedic cleanse. Oh, bullshit. In other words, she just spent a week puking and shitting her guts out. I'm not sure what type of knowledge and enlightenment one gets from that, but I'm not buying that something happened to her and she just happened to marry John. She went in there with an idea that didn't go her way. And now her people are spinning the fuck out of it. Just remember who told you first. Before I go, a fond farewell to the actor Robert Conrad, a real man's man in the 70s. He was the shit, not only in great TV shows and series, but how about the um, the celebrity games? What the hell, you know, the Battle of the Network Stars. He was always a, him and Gabe Kaplan were two guys, and I'm going to see Gabe soon. They were two guys that were always going head to head again. I know if I'd been doing the poker show, Gabe would have so many Conrad stories. When I see him, I'll get some because there's a lot of great stories on Bob Conrad. I love that commercial where he used to put the battery on his shoulder. I forget if it was Everetti or Duracell and say, come on, knock it off. I dare you, knock it off. Tough as nails, this fucking guy. Couple of dicey moments in his life. He was busted for driving his Jaguar over the center meeting out in California, driving drunk, slammed head on into a car with a 26-year-old guy in it who ended up dying two years later from perforated ulcers. His family said he got them from the accident. Terrible, terrible story. Conrad did six months of house confinement, uh, lost the civil trial, got rid of some money for the kid, did five years probation. That would have been a bigger problem now had it happened today. Okay, But the bigger issue, the bigger story for me, and no one talks about it. How about one day Robert Conrad uh, a long time ago was hosting a beauty pageant. It's a Miss Teen pageant. And he immediately marries one of the girls in the pageant. That's great, right? He found happiness. Well, unfortunately, she was 17. Lavelda Fan was 17, and Bob Conrad was 46. Yeah, they got three kids, and they've lived for a long time, but it just goes to show what a different era it was. You know, this Courtney Stodden is all over Instagram and shit with her tits out. She's a walking, talking mess. Her life is just shot before she reached 25. But she married that guy, Doug, what's his name, the actor, when she was 16. It was a big-ass story. They thought, what a pig, this girl. Well, basically, Bobby Conrad did the same thing with this young teenage beauty pageant girl. And no one said shit about it. But at least they did live together or stay married for over 40 years and have three kids. So true love can be found, but... It just should teach us a lesson. We're always so quick to condemn these May-December situations. Yeah, it looks weird. He was young at heart. Maybe she was an old soul. But, you know, 29 years apart's a lot. But if you're in love and it works out, then who the fuck are we to talk? Sometimes we open our mouths like we did with Dog and Angel Moon. Now they're apart. 
We waste so much time giving our all and giving our opinions about what we think. And meanwhile, it means less to the people involved in relationships. So anyhow, I'm going to spend the rest of the night watching the Oscars getting pissed off. And uh, you'll hear all about it on Tuesday's Patreon episode. Patreon.com backslash backslash famous bitch. I'm AJ Benza. That was your show for February 10th, 2020. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. Fame is a bitch is an AJ Benza Workhouse Connect production featuring the endless wisdom, insightful commentary, and sometimes fucked up perspective of AJ Benza. Executive producer Mike Agavino. Technical producer Brian Vasquez.